LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Carl Abrahamson who joins us to discuss his book Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan, Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. During a long, colourful and controversial career, Anton Zander LaVey became best known as the founder of the Church of Satan, which he led until his death in 1997. Although misconceptions regarding Satanism abounded during LaVey's lifetime and continue to do so to this day, he was determined to invoke a satanic archetype in his work, including the name of his organisation. LaVey's philosophy and that of the Church of Satan reeled against mediocrity, conformity and passivity in a society increasingly pandering to victim mentality, political correctness and dumbed-down culture. A society in which excellence is scorned as elitist, self-reliance as selfish, and in which everyone gets a medal just for showing up. Instead, LeVay expounded a philosophy of personal freedom, rugged individualism, and responsibility to the responsible. A world in which beauty is celebrated, passions are indulged, and creativity runs riot. LeVay's influence continues to ripple through the outer reaches of popular culture, and not simply in music, at which LeVay excelled, in our postmodern hellscape of corporate control, cancel culture and identity politics, LeVay's outlook has more resonance and relevance than ever. Hello and welcome, Carl, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, and thank you very much for having me. It's been uh, quite a few years now, but so I'm very happy to be back. Yes, uh, as we mentioned off air, it was around your book, A Culture, The Unseen Forces That um, I Drive Culture Forward, I think. I can't remember exact full title. <laughs> that drive me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there'll be a link uh, to that interview on uh, this interview page at LegalizeFreedom.com. If people want right. to rewind and check that out, they can do so. But uh, the occasion of our talk today is uh, your new book, uh, which is entitled Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan. Infernal Wisdom from the Devil's Den. Before we dive into that, just for people who don't know, say a little bit about your background and your work in general. Right. Uh, I am an author based, born and bred and and based in Sweden. Uh, And um, I think in my teens, I got uh, obsessed by uh, 
culture, but a specific culture. It was usually called uh, trash culture in a way, B-movies, uh, uh, dangerous books, all these things that are quite normal for an intellectual teenager. At the same time, I also got in, uh, interested in the occult and started looking at... Um, uh, books from occult history, etc., etc., and it just sort of snowballed from there. And uh, eventually, these two strains uh, merged in a way. And I think the book Occulture that you mentioned that came out in 2018 that was like a really a, well a culmination, you could say, but something that uh, basically summed up a lot of the things that I've been uh, thinking about and working with and writing about and making films about for a long, long, long time since the late, well, since the late 80s, basically. So um, you could say that I'm an author. Now I also author uh, documentary films, but mainly I'm a writer and I still keep writing about these interesting things, or culture, art, um, uh, interesting artists, um, basically uh, underground stuff but I write it for the uh, overground or mainstream. At least that's how I see myself. Now, in my recorded introduction, I've said a little bit about Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan for people who know nothing about him or what the Church of Satan embodies. So we're not going to, you know, we can move over that. And, if you know, if people can just, I suggest they just get your book. But uh, the introduction gives people a basic grounding to get us started. However, I would just like to ask, how you first discovered uh, the Church of Satan or the work of Anton LaVey. Because for me at the time, it was back in the late 80s when I discovered a copy of the Satanic Bible. And at that time, I think we're of a similar age, at that time, in terms of books and music and, and, and cultural artifacts, there was no internet. So discovering these things sometimes could be very difficult to find. Uh, but we did have a, a global network of... Um, you know, tape traders and uh, people who uh, would uh, write to each other. And, you know, that material gradually made its way, uh, to, you know, from one corner of the globe to the other. But it was certainly a very different process of, of discovery compared to that which we have today. Absolutely. And I think uh, I had no problem uh, finding uh, the Satanic Bible, for instance, uh, or other books of a similar nature because there were, uh, you know, no internet. But then again, there were good bookstores, even in, in uh, tiny Stockholm. And I remember there were a couple of occult bookstores where I sort of um, picked things out. You know, you're always interested in Crowley and you pick older things out and anything that was sort of semi controversial or seemed exciting. And the level book was of course one of those books so uh, I did uh, find that I uh, can't remember exactly must have been uh, mid 80s uh, and then uh, I also remember reading about him a couple of times actually in, in Swedish men's magazines because they used to write about uh, sort of uh, dangerous or weird sex magicians always focusing on the sexy stuff and they even wrote about Austin Spare and Crowley of course and, and LaVey was there because LaVey had always been since um, early Church of Seven Days very media friendly you know he had always invited journalists and photographers from all around the world so those images uh, were spread around the world and, and uh, were also kept in print. It was it never went out of style. So I remember in my youth seeing Swedish men's magazines with uh, pictures from the Black House, sort of 1966, 67. I found it amazingly interesting. And, and that was uh, something that fueled this dark 
uh, fire also. Plus my, um, I would say, infatuation or fascination with Jane Mansfield, the American actress of many qualities. Uh, and um, she had been a friend of LaVey's and a member of the Church of Satan. So there were many things that created this kind of uh, satanic meltdown in my mind basically and it just stayed with me and, and as we'll talk about tonight it, it became it still haunts me in a way but in a very very nice way uh, well i remember hearing levey's name mentioned by a, a a metal band back in the 80s and that, that was my music of choice at the time it was the first thing i really gravitated towards and of course one of the uh, some of the the tenets of of hard rock and heavy metal, you know, the sort of uh, the the freedom philosophy, uh, anti-establishment, um, outsider culture, all of that had some things in common with, you know, Levey's uh, worldview and you know his his um, how shall I put it his characterization his embodiment of a satanic ideal as well. Uh, but it took me a long time. Um, well, not to say a long time, it seems that way now, it was probably like less than a year um, to find out who they were referring to, uh, because they mentioned the name, what I thought they were saying was Levere. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for some guy, L-A-V-E-R-E, mm-hmm. and trolling, I couldn't just go online, I'm trolling bookstores, and there was one uh, unusual alternative bookstore about in the next town, about 15 miles away, and I kept badgering this guy, who wasn't particularly into, you know, occult uh, topics, but he had a lot of um, books on on weird and wonderful subjects mm-hmm. about this guy Levere. You know, I didn't have the first <laughs> name, I just had a Levere, and for ages he turned up nothing. And then one day he showed me this uh, pile of books that he'd bought from from an old guy, and um, who was uh, I don't know whether I think he was moving into a retirement home when he was downsizing, and at the very top of the pile was this little black book uh, with a purple you know, inverted pentagram mm-hmm. with little symbols around it. And and I just looked at it and straight away I knew this is what I've been looking for. This is what they were talking about. It's not Levere, it's Levee. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I got the little book and I would, it just cost me like at the time a couple of pounds, you know, like two or three dollars, I suppose you would mm-hmm. say. And that that was quite an eye-opener because what I discovered in Levee and so many people speak about his work in these terms in this light is that he for them kind of confirmed what or uh, reinforced reflected how they felt about so many things about world you know the world and life in general and about the human species but they quite often thought maybe they were on their own with this or part of a tiny minority especially especially pre-internet so Mm. for me when i read a satanic bible everything that uh, LeVay was railing against the mediocrity, the complacency, the conformity, the passivity in society, the way everything was becoming increasingly inoffensive and bland and insipid and half-baked, and how everyone was becoming uh, increasingly, you know, like we we're going back to medieval serfs time, becoming mm-hmm. so deferential and obedient and dumbed down. All of these things that were in train in the 1980s and have only really gotten worse since (laughs) indeed you know it resonated with me so strongly and for me i wasn't reading it as anything you know for me people would talk oh satanic bible so they immediately go to their own preconceived ideas about satanism but for me these were like uh qualities that were didn't have necessarily anything to do with 
the, the societal ideas about the figure of Satan or what Satanism might be as a philosophy, uh, for me, these were kind of just perennial ideas, perennial wisdom, you know, things that just made sense. Absolutely, absolutely, I, and I totally agree. And this is like uh, there are things in, I guess, in every generation, or more things in each generation that sort of uh, touch upon this uh, perennial. Uh, it's more than a wisdom. I would say also an attitude, because you can have a lot of self-empowering um, philosophies. Um, percolating in the culture or in the zeitgeist but that doesn't mean that it appeals to everyone some some people like black and not pastel color colors and although uh, we can sort of um, uh, like the buddhist metaphor you know take away the, the 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 leaves and find the jewel in the lotus in a way um, there's still this thing where Yes, we want to achieve things. We want to uh, fulfill our lives, find meaning, and and achieve certain things. But what appeal, what's appealing about the satanic is that it's not for everyone. Uh, so it could never be uh, mass market. It always has this sort of uh, elitist or or um, uh, avant-garde, I would say, attitude to it, where it will not attract everybody. It will only attract people who feel um, on the outside, but not necessarily as some kind of, you know, um, looser outsider, but rather someone who hasn't yet found his or her place in the, well, let's call it the wheels of destiny or whatever. And I think that's very important because you can find that specifically in art history also, the same kind of... Um, attitude restrained people who refuse to adapt people who refuse to go with what's being dealt uh, what's being given what's being presented people who want to do it their own way and very very often there is some kind of uh, flirting or a hint uh, or a wink of the eye towards so-called demonic forces or to lucifer or this rebellious spirit or uh, something the rebel Simply, the rebel is a good uh, symbol, and and um, I think that uh, you and I uh, we found it through <laughs> this little book, and also in the wider culture, it, it did exist in in uh, you know metal and things like that. I, I was never a metalhead, so I went straight for for the book in a way, but I was aware of the references, and um, of course there had been shocking sort of um, rock and roll shows even before that I remembered even as a kid I'm thinking of Alice Cooper specifically but there was never anything that was always pure entertainment in a way it wasn't imbued with any kind of uh, philosophy or, or um, that kind of thing but of course when I grew up there was also parallel to this a very very uh, vital underground music scene. I'm thinking of of the one that's been uh, documented in the book England's England's Hidden Reverse, for instance, the, the industrial scenes, and and um, it was always imbued with a lot of intellectual fodder, and a lot of it was magical. And again, not pointing to you know some uh, Indian swamis or, or uh, politically correct uh, things like you know gurus from from. Uh, from the east it was always weird people like uh, austin spare and crowley of course and lave was in there somewhere also so um i came to a formatting um point and from there it sort of grew even more into me feeling that i wanted to be not only part of it but i wanted to be actively involved and uh, a creative uh, piece of this huge puzzle which contains artistic expression creativity in general uh, experimental magic and 
um, definitely an, an identification with a very, very rebellious spirit. Yeah, I mean, just speaking about music, uh, you're talking about Alice Cooper there, you know, the sort of the, 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 the sort of pure entertainment of that. And it was a, you know, a great spectacle. And, and, you know, and he, he's a very intelligent guy. Uh, but even Black Sabbath spoke about their music in terms of, well, we noticed that, you know, we used to go to horror movie matinees at the cinema, you know, because it was cheaper than yeah. going in the evening. And, and yeah. we, we noticed that people like to be scared, so we thought we'd make scary music. There's nothing wrong with that. But no, it doesn't, it, it doesn't embody any kind of uh, philosophy or anything like that. And I always felt that there was something in that music somewhere trying to get out. And this, of course, later did become more embodied and expressed by artists who, who, who did get it more and were able to put it, mm -hmm. the, the music and, uh, and on a different footing. And yeah, this absolutely. also spilt over into literature and cinema as well. They were able to, you know, get something of, um, you know, vital of the the essence of what this was about, what this feeling was, and 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 actually hone it, you know, refine it and target it, uh, mm -hmm. rather than just the, the vague generalism of oh, you know, this is this is dark or this is scary or this is the subversive or whatever, because that that runs out of steam quite quickly if there's yeah. nothing, nothing behind it, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and and. Um... So basically, I think, uh, well, we, both you and me, we, we sort of uh, came to the realization that there was such a thing <laughs> as the Church of Satan. Uh, for me, uh, I was certainly aware of it, and I, I did sort of, I wouldn't say idolize, but but I, I held them in great respect and knew that he was still uh, out there somewhere, uh, although I, uh, there was also this thing that was well known that he was quite reclusive you know but then at this time we're talking uh, mid 80s i was involved with um the temple of psychic youth and and working with the uh, genesis peorage and and um it's very very interesting times and at the same time i wanted to try my hand at making music myself so i had my little rock band and we were called white stains and the first record that we um uh, made was a 12-inch single and in a song on there called Sweet Jane, just like the Lou Reed song, but it wasn't a cover. It was a, a tribute song or a homage to uh, Jane Mansfield and her relationship with Anton LaVey. And when that record came out, Genesis said that, you know, I have LaVey's address. I think you should send it to him. I think he would find it amusing, if nothing else. And I thought, wow, that would be cool. So... I just did that. I sent it to, to the address in San Francisco and didn't really expect to hear anything. But I did receive a letter from Anton LaVey in which he expressed his uh, gratitude and sort of uh, acknowledged the um, labor of love from my side. And he also made me uh, a member of the Church of Satan. And as you can imagine, for someone like me who... Uh, romanticized the, the, these people and this sort of um, area of activity so much, I was mind blown. I was absolutely um, taken aback by how cool this was. And from there on, um, many things in my life became um, interesting because I realized that I myself had the power to uh, open doors, uh, some of which I didn't even know existed, mainly through uh, my my own person, of course, but also through what I was doing, networking, uh, making fan scenes. I was working on the first issue of my occultural uh, 
journal, the Fenris Wolf at the time, and all of these things led to many interesting meetings. But that first trip to the U.S. in uh, 1989, where I met LaVey um, and Kenneth Anger uh, for the first time, that was really, again, like a, a meltdown because I realized that all my fantasies certainly had the uh, potential not only to be like internally fulfilled, but to become an actually um, manifested reality. And I would say that from that trip and onwards I had made up my mind <laughs> about what I wanted to do with my life you know I just wanted to be in this environment and learn things and and meet extremely interesting people and also document it and and, and write about it well a couple of the other things that that really excited me about reading LeVay uh you know discovering someone that was articulating things that I thought and felt uh were important but again I wasn't really I certainly wasn't getting from the mainstream culture at all, or anybody really around me in my life at the time was, and this was something again, I think that's really become like a festering sore in the 21st century, but it's, it was there already in the, you know, the, the decade we're talking about the 1980s and then into the 1990s and on it went as both of us, you know, moved through uh, into our adult lives. And it was the uh, kind of the idea of the lowest common denominator enforced equality. You know, the, mm -hmm. no no one's better than anyone else. You know, I've used better in air quotes because, you know, how do you put value judgment on what's good and what's bad? But uh, I think we both know what we mean uh, when we say enforced equality. And, and mm -hmm. the, the idea that everyone gets a medal. So why strive uh, for anything to, you know, to be exceptional or to create anything original or to leave a mark or anything like that? Because everyone gets a medal just for showing up and tied to this as well was uh, the idea of um, a victim mentality. So, you know, you don't like your life, something's going wrong, it's always someone else's fault. Forget personal responsibility. There's nothing you can do about it, even if you wanted to, which is very disempowering. And, and also, by the way, not only does everyone get a medal, but that, you know, you're owed a living just by being alive. Right. You know, you're yep. entitled to something. And these were all things that, that I was kind of pushing back against, that, that, you know, were, that were coming to me through not just popular culture, but through, uh, you know, m uh, mainstream education. You know, when I was at school, there was this, that idea was even happening then. You know, it's like, well, you did come first in the race, you know, but every, every you know, the, the person, everyone else as well, they took part. It's not the winning, it's the taking part. I remember that. I remember that so clearly. Mm -hmm. And um, these were things that, uh, again, it's, it's it, this is, these are hot topics even today, you know, even saying these things is kind of like, whoa, hang on a minute. And the idea is that, you know, discrimination in itself is always a negative, even though, as I mentioned in another recent interview, it doesn't come with any value loaded in it. So, you know, you can say I've got very discriminating taste in restaurants. I've got discriminating taste in music and people, well, that's a good thing. Yeah, you yeah know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that what made uh, the Lavean universe or or the Church of Satan and sort of everything revolving around that uh, vortex in a way so interesting was the fact that here, as you say, you had this um, very clear cut and and uh, it's a Nietzschean philosophy presented for an, basically an American audience. So it's kind of stripped and and in a way simplified but not in a not in a bad way um and that philosophy i felt a resonance with uh, immediately but 
it grew on me also that there's so much more to this than just some, you know, the, the anti-stance, the, the re rebellious force that goes against. There were many, many pro things uh, within this LaVey's philosophy. And, and I found that uh, very, very interesting that he was so creative as a contemporary magician, whereas most of the uh, magic that was going on was either super conservative in the Western ceremonial tradition, um, even the you know Crowley groups um, that popped up soon became uh, yet another Freemasonic structured group of of um, I don't know too many people in a way. Uh, on the other hand, you had the, the chaos magicians; they were very prevalent in in, uh, in the UK and Topi, of course, and and so there were interesting things going on. But Lavey had been doing this since the mid '60s, actually early '60s, before the Church of Satan, even, where there were many, many uh, life-affirming and life-enhancing things, which is also you know a Nietzschean uh, heritage, um, meaning that he came up with magical concepts that uh, were not part of a tradition. They were not, they were actually brand new. And that's one of the things that has, uh, that has, um, I don't know, irritated me over the years when I've been talking about LaVey with other, you know, what LaVey would call occultniks, people who are obsessed by occultism. Um, and they say that, you know, he was just a showman, he wasn't for real, la-da-da. But when you actually read his stuff and look at the, the material, he was so innovative, he was so um, creative in his own magic. And I mean, he was also very generous, we have to say, to be sharing all of his findings and methods and rituals uh, and attitudes, because uh, he could just as well have stayed in his black house, enjoyed the royalty money, um, membership uh, fees, whatever, um, and led a very good life that way. But he wanted to have his Church of Satan. He wanted to share his ideas with people he knew uh, would resonate with it because you had this distinct rite of passage, meaning the S-word. Uh, because if you come to someone and they demand that you explain why do you call it satanism why not call it something else you know why the why this s word then you know that it'll be difficult to convey uh, the philosophy because they they are they are already i don't know programmed by their own uh, life and background but if you come meet someone who says whoa this is really interesting and satan seems to be very interesting as a symbol not as a real anthropomorphic thing but as a symbol of an entire corpus of rebellious uh, intelligent material from human history, um, the uh, creative spirit, the the one who goes against, the one who pinpoints and criticizes hypocrisy in culture. So many cultural uh, strains have this sort of diabolical taint, and he was aware of that, and he uh, put that in in his own cauldron in a way, and and uh, made something very very vital. So. I think we should also not forget the the one of the most important ingredients of his uh, uh, cuisine in a way, and that's the self-indulgence. Uh, we are taught today that you know, oh, you're just an egotist, or ego is bad, and you know, uh, but 
I believe there's something we could call like uh, altruistic egotism, you know, meaning that you cannot really be good to someone else unless first you're really good to yourself. You have to indulge in whatever it is that you feel uh, makes you happy and content and which gives you meaning in life. Otherwise, you'll just be a little, uh, what do you call it, a ball in a, in a pinball game that where someone else is controlling the, the, the pinball game. And and that uh, is sort of uh, the most empowering thing about the Laveian uh, philosophy or system. It's not necessarily the the lesser magic or the the greater magic, uh, meaning the ritualized, symbolized activities that you can do to achieve. Uh, I think one of the most important things is this encouragement at uh, for um, you know being aware that it's important to be self-indulgent whatever it is you know you know it doesn't have to be extravagant or even known or official it could just be that you like a certain kind of candy and it's your secrecy or you collect comics even though you're 57 uh, you know things like that but that's the thing that fills you with passion and joy and and, and happiness and he was right also, Lave was right in the sense that there there will always be people who will try to put you down simply because you're happy about your little um, private obsession. Oh, a couple of things from all that. I mean, I, I agree with you about the, the life-affirming aspect of, of this philosophy. And actually, there's so much positivity because that's what I took from it anyway. Yeah, yeah. And also, that yes, the, the importance of that you know that eternal kind of that then the rebel or what to, the the word that's often used in the context of Levee, the disruptor you know mm-hmm. which again is another word that for most people has a negative connotation but you know that's can be a, such an important thing and that's how that's how um life and culture and the species moves forward is you know sort of punctuation points you know when things become stagnant then something disrupts that you know yeah. positive change whether that's something that we proactively choose, uh, which is the best way to do it. If not, it will be forced upon us, you know. That change will be forced upon us when, when necessary. And actually, rebellion of a certain type actually becomes quite tedious after a while because a lot of times a any type of cultural establishment or political or social establishment, you know, wants that control valve of, you know, quote-unquote rebellion to just be there all the time as a way of, it's just like letting off steam. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. change anything. I think as much as I liked a lot of the the, the punk bands of, of the era, the original era, I also felt a lot of it was like what they now call controlled opposition. You know, it was there to, yeah. to make people feel that there was some kind of big change of foot when really it wasn't. And a lot of these artists got co-opted into the establishment and uh you mentioned this idea of selfishness and self-indulgence another aspect that the levian philosophy uh, reels against a lot of your tendency in society is is something i've never liked which well it's kind of two-pronged it's this collectivism you know mm. not, nothing wrong with coming together to work on things of, of mutual interest but the idea that we're you know we're all in this together type thing like it or not and and of course safety over freedom this i and and Personal freedom being the bottom line in all this, and that's seen as selfish. It's like, well, if you're not with everyone on everything, then you're you're being selfish, and you're put you're threatening the integrity um, of the collective. And one powerful rejoinder to all of this um, in in your book actually is the the section on ethics 
from from mm-hmm. the, from the foreword actually, mm-hmm. uh, which is the idea, you know, th- this idea that um, that a lot of people would you know portray you know a satanic philosophy as embodied in LeVay's worldview as somehow negative or destructive. Or it's, I, it's not possible for anybody else, to use another phrase from the book, any other people than those that, that declare themselves to be the good guys. Yeah. You know, to be the good guys, to be ethical, to be moral, whatever you take that to be. There's many different versions of that. Yeah, and no, I think it, 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 that's the thing, you know, it, it is the more you look at it. And I mean, you could say that, oh, these were just some, you know, uh, cheap paperbacks that came out in the, in the uh, late 60s and 70s. And then he ha- added some uh, some uh, collections of essays uh, in the 90s. And the last one came out just after he had died, the one, the one called Satan Speaks. And sort of um, it doesn't appear to be much. But when you look at it uh, with the or cultural or, or uh, philosophical goggles on, there's a lot, as you say, to unpack uh, in there. And um, I'm not, uh, you know, <laughs> a philosophy student so I, or a philosophy professor, so I wouldn't sort of try to categorize it. But obviously, it's, uh, uh, I call him in the book, uh, Pop Nietzsche for the American market. And I think that's pretty accurate um, in the sense that he, uh, popularized uh, Nietzsche and his ideas. Of course, many of those come from Schopenhauer before. But there is also the beauty of him integrating uh, his own life experiences his, uh, into the philosophy that he, he then presents from the mid-60s and onwards, meaning uh, working, uh, not going down any you know academic route or the college route, but actually rather working with the circus and the sideshow and learning all of these things and working with taming and and uh, taking care of big cats like lions and tigers, it, meaning being exposed to a very very I don't know seedy world in a way, uh, also uh, feral, uh, literally feral when working with those big cats. And so he had a different kind of college education, which was like into the true nature of of the human being as just another kind of animal and equally feral to uh, to uh, the so-called wild animals and and again also by trade by profession he was a musician and he was a very skilled musician and he played um, in some, you know, highbrow settings, but it was mostly mostly lowbrow. Meaning, he played at, you know, dive bars and sleazy places and private engagements and and uh, burlesque shows. So he was in this super sexual, uh, almost um, uh, quasi-criminal uh, underworld in a way, and identified with with that environment a lot. Again, being on the outside, like an outsider or an anti. A hero from from the film noir um, uh, discourse or 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 uh, description, um, and all of these things. Uh, so it wasn't only uh, someone who was occult. He was filled with life experience that people usually didn't have. And then when he um, sort of merged that with his genuine interest in the occult, he had debunked a lot. That was also sort of on vogue at the time, to debunk things. And he did his fair bit of of debunking, but he, he did realize that there's something here um, 
I think also it was activated by his be, being such an avid reader of, of Pulp Fiction and this thing, you know, the so-called cosmic horror of Lovecraft and, and the weird tales people, uh, meaning that there is some kind of dark energy in nature that we cannot and probably shouldn't <laughs> try to figure out too much about. Just something there that we can sort of tap into in a way. And it's not necessarily, you know, something divine or something demonic. It's just, you know, nature at work. Um, however, he realized that there are certain ways of, of you know, briefly getting in touch with this energy, and that is through ritual, through the psychodrama of ritual, either on your own or together with other people. And he had experimented with that, just as he had experimented with music, with set design, uh, with uh, lighting, meaning manipulations of the space that you're in. That was yet another concept that he he uh, sort of conceived and was sort of groundbreaking in in. Um, uh, well, let's call it contemporary occultism of the time. So there are so many things, you know, there are philosophical things, uh, there are, are uh, ways in which he tried to um, integrate those philosophical things into uh, practical, realistic, uh, tangible way of dealing with things. Whereas most other, I don't know, traditions or groups or whatever, they were basically selling uh, pipe dreams, you know, the potential of the potential is great potential and very profitable. And he sort of uh, took everything down to earth and said, this is this. I call it Satanism. It's not for everybody. But, uh, you know, all the people who were attracted to it, they have uh, basically have, they have really good things to say about it because it talked to them. That kind of sim symbolism talked to them. And, and uh, I felt a strong resonance with that, and I still do. And I could never, for instance, accept or, or take for, uh, you know, um, you, you know, seriously acknowledge someone who claimed that Satan exists, for instance, like some kind of anthropomorphic beast or uh, that kind of heritage from medieval Christian uh, iconography, which was basically psychotic, you know. But if you look at it from the point of view of a philosophy that's stern and strong, that is discriminating in the sense that there is a difference between me and everyone else. Uh, and I want what's best for me. Ergo, I'm selfish, but I'm also happy when I'm selfish. So my happiness radiates, my happiness inspires other people. Uh, so it's not about shutting yourself in, in some kind of black ivory tower. It's more... Um, a way of approaching life and living life to the fullest that, you know, can inspire people. If it does, that's great. If it doesn't, that's great too, because I'm, <laughs> I'm too busy li living my own life, you know. So that said, I think that uh, LaVey, I think he once said that uh, he had opened a kind of Pandora's box with this you know, potential freedom that he offered through the, this philosophy when it when it's applied, and he was referring to, of course, like the, in the 1980s, this kind of brutal cocaine-driven <laughs> freedom in a way of the yuppie generation. It was me, 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 and and they were just basically like kids. They had no rooting in any uh, real self-knowledge. They had no rooting in. I don't know, awareness of the fact that we are actually social animals and if we treat everyone like shit and just demand that they should do what we say, uh, sooner or later someone will react and you know smack us. 
That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>